0: Hey there, Pulmcasters. Today, we're going to talk cerebral edema and acute liver failure. No frills, no fluff. Let's dive right into the good stuff. I think the fact that you made that rhyme is
1: frills and fluff. I'm just saying. But acute liver failure is defined as acute liver injury, of some sort, drug, virus, autoimmune, or other, hepatic encephalopathy, and impaired synthetic function, which typically means an INR greater than one and a half.
0: I just want to clarify that acute liver failure occurs in people who previously had normal and healthy functioning livers. However, after the exposure to some injury source, their livers rapidly deteriorate. Now, there are various timing criteria for acute liver failure depending on the guidelines that you look at, but a commonly used cutoff is acute liver injury, hepatic encephalopathy, and INR greater than 1.5 that occurs in a period of less than 26 weeks.
1: So we're not talking cirrhotics here.
0: Hepatic encephalopathy is really the key player as well. HE is what marks the transition from acute liver injury alone to acute liver failure.
1: Hepatic encephalopathy is a catch-all term for neurological dysfunction that occurs because of shunting of toxins, chiefly ammonia, but others like glutamine, GABA, serotonin, and methionine. These toxins normally move from the gut to the portal circulation to be detoxified by the liver.
0: But... In liver failure, especially in acute liver failure, these toxins are shunted directly from the portal circulation into the systemic circulation and across the blood-brain barrier.
1: There are four grades of HE based on the
0: West Haven criteria. Grade one is changes in behavior but no change in level of consciousness
1: grade two is disorientation drowsiness and asterixis.
0: grade three is significant confusion incoherent speech and sleepy all the time but arousable to voice grade
1: four is comatose unresponsive to pain decorticate or decerebrate
0: posturing Now, there are a variety of causes of acute liver failure. The most common in the U.S., if you had to guess, is Tylenol, acetaminophen. In developing countries, however, the most common cause is a viral hepatitis.
1: Acute liver failure in and of itself is relatively uncommon. There's only about 2,000 cases per year in the United States. But despite its rarity, these patients have profoundly high rates of morbidity and mortality, especially if it's unrecognized or untreated.
0: Today, the leading causes of death and acute liver failure are multi-organ failure secondary to sepsis and cerebral herniation secondary to cerebral edema.
1: We've already had a few podcasts, just a few on sepsis management.
0: But we're a little lacking in the cerebral edema podcast department.
1: Until today.
0: The skull is a rigid
1: container that holds a relatively fixed amount of three major components, blood, brain parenchyma, and CSF.
0: Cerebral edema is an increase in the amount of interstitial fluid in the brain parenchyma. Now because the cranium has a fixed volume, even small increases in brain water can cause a significant rise in intracranial pressure, or ICP. The resultant rise in ICP can drop cerebral perfusion pressure, eventually causing whole brain ischemia. If elevated ICP becomes severe enough, you can end up with brain herniation and death. Remember that cerebral
1: perfusion pressure is calculated by mean arterial pressure, MAP, minus ICP. CPP reflects the pressure the systemic circulation needs to overcome to enter cerebral circulation and perfuse the brain. Ideally, you want a CPP greater than 60.
0: There are three main mechanisms for cerebral edema in acute liver failure. The first is cytotoxic edema related to ammonia. Now, ammonia is a molecule that's produced by gut flora, and it's typically broken down by the liver. However, in acute liver failure, ammonia is one of the metabolites that we talked about earlier that's able to bypass the liver. Once it enters the systemic circulation, it's able to diffuse freely across the blood-brain barrier.
1: Astrocytes within the brain detoxify ammonia to glutamine, which is a good thing. But glutamine is osmotically active and draws water into
0: astrocytes, making them swell. To make matters worse... Glutamine paves the way for additional ammonia to be shunted into the astrocytes within the brain. This is the so-called Trojan horse hypothesis. You know, I wish I was a biologist so I could come up with these fun names for all the biological phenomena out there.
1: You find a way to outnerd yourself on every episode. You would want to be a biologist. I'm
0: just saying it would be a fun gig.
1: The additional ammonia shunted into astrocytes by glutamine causes mitochondrial dysfunction oxidative stress, inflammation, which leads to further swelling. It's very similar if you want to think about it as we see in sepsis.
0: Now, while cytotoxic edema is the principal mechanism of cerebral edema in acute liver failure, other honorable mentions exist, and these include... Vasogenic edema, which is breakdown and eventual leakiness of the blood-brain barrier, and impaired cerebral autoregulation. Remember, autoregulation is the ability of cerebral blood vessels to either vasodilate or vasoconstrict based on how much blood they're receiving. When this ability is lost, things like hypertension lead to way too much blood entering the brain and elevated ICP.
1: Whoa, that is enough physiology for one episode. Let's hit him with a
0: quick summary. Small increases in total brain water can lead to big increases in ICP.
1: Elevations in ICP can drop CPP and result in
0: whole brain ischemia. Remember that cerebral perfusion pressure is equal to mean arterial pressure minus intracranial pressure, and ideally, you want that CPP greater than 60 millimeters of mercury.
1: The primary mechanism for cerebral edema and acute liver failure is cytotoxic edema, secondary to ammonia, and ultimately the osmotically active breakdown product, glutamine.
0: Think that we've made the case that cerebral edema is pretty bad in acute liver failure. We talk about things like whole brain ischemia, herniation, death, increased morbidity, mortality for all comers. What should we be looking for in these patients that would suggest that a patient with acute liver failure is developing cerebral edema?
1: Well, I think we should divide that question into two parts. All right, let's hear it. First, which patients are at high risk for developing cerebral edema? Second, how can we diagnose elevated
0: ICP? I can accept that split. Why don't we start with the first? Which of the acute liver failure cohort is at highest risk for developing cerebral edema?
1: Well, there are a few. Hyperacute liver failure presentations that is less than seven days, such as you would see in acetaminophen. Patients who are less than 35 years old. Patients who have grade three or four hepatic encephalopathy. If your arterial ammonia is greater than 200, sepsis. And lastly, those who are requiring pressors or
0: CRRT. I want to hone in on that high-grade encephalopathy component. Let's put this in perspective. The risk of cerebral edema increases to about 35% in patients who have grade 3 hepatic encephalopathy. Remember, those are patients who are confused and pretty sleepy, but they'll wake up when you talk to them. Once your patient reaches grade 4 hepatic encephalopathy, the risk of cerebral edema goes all the way up to 75%. So those patients with acute liver failure who are comatose, there is a 75% chance that that patient has clinically significant cerebral edema.
1: Another study with similar results was done at King's College in 2007, which demonstrated that 55% of patients with an ammonia greater than 200 developed clinically significant ICP.
0: Take-home message here. Be on the lookout for cerebral edema in your acute liver failure cohort. But be especially concerned if your patient is young, if they've overdosed on Tylenol or have some other hyperacute presentation, if they have high grade, grade 3 or 4, hepatic encephalopathy, or significantly elevated ammonia. The other patients you want to be worried about are those who have sepsis or are requiring pressors or CRRT. Moving on to our second question, let's talk about how we can diagnose elevated ICP.
1: This one is a little bit more controversial, but let's start with something we can all agree on. Patients with acute liver failure should be getting serial neurological exams.
0: That's not controversial at all. Hey, we're just easing into the
1: waters here, Jer. The serial neuro exam should focus on pupil size, hepatic encephalopathy grade, and deep tendon reflexes.
0: In cerebral edema and associated elevated ICP, what you would classically see is pupillary dilation, a progressive worsening of the patient's hepatic encephalopathy, and a progressive loss of deep tendon reflexes. Man, nobody carries around a reflex hammer anymore. First off, some people do. I wouldn't know who. But second off, you can use the chest piece of your stethoscope as a reflex hammer. That was a classic
1: ICU trick. Moving on, the other commonly taught triad of elevated ICP is Cushing's reflex, which is hypertension, bradycardia, and chain-stokes
0: respirations. The problem is clinical exam findings are inconsistent and insensitive. Even a head CT, though specific for cerebral edema, is relatively insensitive for cerebral edema and elevated ICP, especially if it's done early. So enough with the classics. How do we actually diagnose elevated ICP? Bring on the controversy. I can take it.
1: Well, now that you've got us all hyped up, I wouldn't say it's that controversial. In short, to date, there is no safe, reliable
0: tool to measure ICP that has been shown to improve outcomes in ALF. So, like every other tool to measure anything in the intensive care unit? Pretty
1: much. Let's do a quick review of what we have at our disposal. First up, the Brain Bolt.
0: Now, the Brain Bolt is one of the many types of invasive ICP monitors. We have many. We have things like epidural, subdural, intraparenchymal, and intraventricular catheters that we can use. Invasive ICP monitoring is hands down the most accurate and currently the only data-validated tool for diagnosing, managing, and monitoring cerebral edema and elevated ICP.
1: So why aren't we using it every shift? Well, the problem that's been associated with as high as a 10% risk of significant intracranial hemorrhage.
0: Despite the proposed benefits of invasive ICP monitoring as a measurement tool, things like real-time measurement of ICP and therefore real-time measurement of cerebral perfusion pressure, real-time feedback on whether or not your interventions are actually working to reduce the patient's ICP, despite all of those things that we think would be helpful... There's been no demonstrated clinical benefit among patients with acute liver failure, and it's pretty well studied in the literature.
1: That reminds me so much of the PA catheter. Lots of physiologic information, but no improved outcomes.
0: And the potential risk for harm. Like we said, in this case, significant intracranial hemorrhage.
1: Nevertheless, invasive ICP monitoring does have its place. Currently, the U.S. ALF study group recommended placement of invasive ICP monitors in patients with grade 3 to 4 hepatic encephalopathy.
0: An alternative approach comes from King's College Hospital, which is one of the major liver transplantation centers in the U.K. King's College recommends that we place ICP monitors in patients who have clinical signs or evidence of evolving cerebral edema, but they really leave it up to clinical judgment.
1: My suspicion is that invasive ICP monitoring will remain institution-specific until we are out of guideline limbo with some more solid data and better agents to reverse coagulopathy.
0: Now, there are also a few non-invasive options for diagnosing elevated ICP. The few mentioned in the literature are transcranial Dopplers,
1: which is an indirect measurement of ICP in cerebral blood flow, and neurophysiological
0: monitoring. Like, uh... EEG, EMG kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, pretty much. So transcranial dopplers, neurophysiological monitoring, and near-infrared spectroscopy. Sort of like the pulse ox of cerebral edema. <laughs>
0: That's a stupid analogy. <laughs> it's best I got. And then, finally... I already know what you're going to say. Go ahead. I love it optic nerve sheath diameter with point of care ultrasound that's the one now optic nerve focus is a relatively new tool on the market but it is surprisingly easy to do i will put a video in the show notes that you can watch it'll be three maybe five minutes but essentially you place a tegaderm over the eye yes you have to place a tegaderm if you've ever had ultrasound gel in your eye it does not feel good so derm over, you put the gel on the Tegoderm, and you use the linear probe right over the lens. You scan through the vitreous to the posterior aspect of the eye, and there you will see the optic nerve sheath right behind the globe. You measure from outside wall to outside wall, and greater than 5 millimeters is consistent with an elevated ICP. The literature has reported a sensitivity somewhere in the neighborhood of 80% and a specificity somewhere in the neighborhood of 90%.
1: So for those of you who are new to POCUS, not yet POCUS believers, or think that ultrasound for optic nerve measurement would be hard, well, I got some news for you. Jeremy and I taught it to novice scanner PA students in a matter of hours.
0: And they were doing it correctly in the correct locations with the correct implications uh, and interpretations of the image. So this is for sure doable.
1: An important aside, all of these non-invasive therapies, transcranial dopplers, neurophysiologic monitoring, near-infrared spectroscopy, and yes, even your beloved
0: ultrasound are not validated in acute liver failure. That's fair. Then where does that leave us? How should the listeners go about diagnosing cerebral edema and elevated ICP in the cohort of patients who have acute liver failure?
1: Well, for the listeners out there, I have two pieces of advice depending on where you practice. If you are in an institution that is or at least has access to a liver transplantation center, I would work with your hepatology team to establish a consensus or protocol on diagnosis and management of elevated ICP in acute liver failure. If you're in an institution that does not have access to those resources, Make sure you prioritize frequent neuroexams in those patients similar to ICH or post-op cranial management. Be aggressive in moving patients with ALF plus grade 2 hepatic encephalopathy to the ICU. And assume cerebral edema is present, especially in the high-risk cohort we've already talked about, such as acetaminophen overdose. Maintain a low threshold to consult your local transplantation center and transfer
0: your patient there. To summarize... Remember who's at risk for developing cerebral edema and acute liver failure. It's those young patients presenting with hyperacute liver failure who have high-grade encephalopathy or significantly elevated ammonias. Those patients who are septic or surZ or require pressors or CRT. And then further, remember that there is no firm consensus yet on how to diagnose an elevated ICP. Make sure that you consult with your hepatology team if available, and if not, or even if so, be aggressive and assume the presence of cerebral edema, especially if the patient is at high risk. Let's transition
1: over to management of cerebral edema and acute liver
0: failure. To start... If they're grade two, hepatic encephalopathy or above, just go ahead and move them to the ICU. None of this, oh, we can keep them on the floor, we can watch them there. These patients are at high risk for deterioration. If they're grade two or above, just move them. What if they're grade three or above?
1: So for your grade threes or above, what we would consider a kind of basic ICU therapy for these patients or kind of really relatively conservative is go ahead, intubate that patient, start them on propofol, Get your head of bed up to 30 degrees and minimize their painful stimuli as much as possible.
0: I think that's so true. Those things are pretty routine ICU care. Most of those patients with grade three hepatic encephalopathy are going to be to the point where they cannot protect their airway. Certainly, if they're at grade four, they cannot protect their airway. So, if you're moving forward and intubating those patients in the first place, start that propofol drip. It helps to sort of reduce that cerebral blood flow keep the head of bed at 30 degrees. That's something very, very important in this cohort that should be important for everybody on the vent, but especially in the acute liver failure cerebral edema cohort.
1: All right, Jerry. let's talk about advanced strategies. This is where it gets a little bit more controversial and more institution-specific.
0: These can really be divided into two categories. The first is to reduce brain volume, and the second is to reduce cerebral blood flow. So, why don't we start with some of the things that reduce brain volume?
1: So you really have three options, mannitol, CRRT, and hypertonic saline.
0: Why don't you start with mannitol?
1: So mannitol, it's got some small studies on its side that have shown a demonstrated survival benefit, but it's not been consistent throughout the literature. How it works is it draws water out of the astrocytes. It's of little to no benefit if the patient is aneuric because there's no osmotic diuresis to accompany the drying of your astrocytes. All right, Jerry, you talk about CRT.
0: CRT is another strategy that has actually demonstrated a mortality benefit. And this is a study by Cardoso et al. out of hepatology in 2018. Most of our local hepatology team agrees that if there's a patient who presents with acute liver failure along with an elevated ammonia... You should pretty much immediately pull the trigger on CRRT, even if their renal function is normal. The concept here is that there's some logistical concerns. And the concern is that many patients with liver failure have a risk of coagulopathy, certainly if they don't have it already. If they have ongoing acute liver failure, there's a risk for that INR continuing to rise, the bleeding risk. Continuing to go up. And so, if you're conservative in your initiation of CRT and therefore conservative in your placement of the VASCath, you run the risk of not having that VASCath in until the INR is eight, nine, and the bleeding risk is much higher. Our consensus is go ahead, place that VASCath in those acute liver failure, elevated ammonia patients, start CRT earlier than later. And the idea here, again, is that we are reducing brain volume. Let's wrap up with hypertonic saline. And this is an interesting component here because there's really no consistent data with hypertonic with regard to mortality.
1: Especially once your ICP is already elevated, there's limited benefit to adding hypertonic saline at that point. And this is also pretty hard to dose if mannitol has already been given. At a minimum, you should be avoiding hyponatremia. You're keeping your sodium target to 140 to 145 and even higher than that has been done. But in addition to that, make sure to reduce or remove your hypotonic drips whenever possible, especially your half-normal saline, D5, half-normal, things like that. And then make sure you engage with your nephrology team, especially if you're running both hypertonic saline and CRRT at the same time, just because you're going to have to cut back on your dialysate.
0: So those were the three strategies that reduce brain volume, mannitol, CRRT, and hypertonic. Now we move on to the strategies that reduce cerebral blood flow. The first thing that we should be reaching for is propofol. And if you're reaching the stage of talking about strategies to reduce brain volume and reduce cerebral blood flow, propofol should already be running. Remember that propofol is going to be a significant GABA agonist that's going to calm down the metabolic rate of the brain and therefore reduce the amount of blood needed to perfuse those brain cells.
1: So another therapy you can do to reduce cerebral blood flow is hyperventilation. Just remember when using this one, it's only temporarily effective and really it should only be used as a bridge to other therapies while you're getting other things up and running. So I see this one come in and out of vogue in the ICU, Jeremy. We want to do this as a bridge. What we should be shooting for. What's our PCO2?
0: There's no broad consensus about the specific target, though most experts agree that obviously you want to go less than 40 and uh, no less than 25. So I would probably say somewhere in the neighborhood of 25, 30, 35 would be appropriate. Remember, this is only a bridge. The effect of hyperventilation on reducing cerebral blood flow is temporary at best.
1: So hypothermia is another option. There's a couple studies on this. One, Janelle et al. showed a mortality benefit, though they felt like this was probably selection bias. Sicker patients uh, got the hypothermia protocol. Side effects were relatively minimal, though, so you
0: may want to go ahead and cool
1: these patients. Do you know offhand if they used invasive... 33 or more of a targeted temperature management?
0: Most people in the studies did not want to use invasive targeted temperature management stuff, again, because of the bleeding risk. So a lot of it was non-invasive cooling. One of the problems that they encountered, though, was shivering, and we know that shivering increases elevated ICP, so you just really need to be, these aren't the patients that you just kind of set it and forget it and set a temperature and leave the room, and when they get there, they get there. You want to make sure that you're assessing for shivering, and if they are shivering, make sure they have adequate sedation and be pretty aggressive with paralyzing if shivering becomes a major concern or increase your temperature target, maybe from 33 to a 36 prevention of fever kind of picture.
1: I'm not sure we can get away with any disease state focused ICU episode without talking about steroids.
0: Though this time we actually have a consensus on whether or not we should be using steroids in this cohort.
1: There's a steroid consensus?
0: There is a steroid consensus once and for all. Are you guys ready? Patients with cerebral edema secondary to acute liver failure should not get glucocorticoids. There is no benefit. There is an increased risk of infection And it just wouldn't help. So we say, don't do it. We all agree. If you don't agree, well, you're going against all the guidelines.
1: I am shocked we agree on steroids. All right, Jeremy, let's do some take-home pearls.
0: Acute liver failure is defined as acute liver injury along with an elevated INR greater than 1.5 and hepatic encephalopathy. Remember, you have to have hepatic encephalopathy. All of these things occurring in less than 26 weeks.
1: Remember the grades of hepatic encephalopathy? Grade 1 is changes in behavior, no change in level of consciousness.
0: Grade 2 is disorientation, drowsiness, and asterixis. Grade 3 is significant confusion, incoherent speech, sleeping but awakes to voice. And grade 4 is those patients who are completely comatose, completely unresponsive to pain, or demonstrate decorticate or decerebrate posturing.
1: Principally, cytotoxic edema, swelling of astrocytes secondary to ammonia.
0: The risk of cerebral edema increases in those young patients with hyperacute presentations, high-grade encephalopathy, sepsis, or those patients requiring pressors or CRRT.
1: Get with your liver team on the best way to assess ICP
0: but at a minimum, transfer all patients with acute liver failure and grade 2 or above hepatic encephalopathy to the ICU.
1: You're likely going to intubate your grade 3 and 4 hepatic encephalopathy patients, start them on propofol, keep that head of bed up, and minimize their painful stimuli.
0: For the advanced strategies, probably consider CRRT, especially if you have acute liver failure and elevated ammonia, and remember the timing of that vas placement with the risk of developing coagulopathy. Some of the other stuff, like mannitol, hypertonic, hypothermia, probably talk with your transplant team on the best strategies to use for each patient.
1: All right, Jeremy, so you're at an outside hospital, you don't have a transplant team, you're getting the transfer process started, you've just intubated your grade 4 hepatic encephalopathy patient, you're waiting on a CT scan, but you're pretty sure they're going to have cerebral edema. Which one of these therapies that show weak benefit are you going to choose?
0: I'm going to drop a VASCAF if I anticipate a delay in transfer, I'm going to start CRT. If they're not anuric, I will start mannitol. If they are anuric, I'll start hypertonic. And I'll consider things like hypothermia and hyperventilation, sort of depending on what my transplant team says, if I'm able to call them. But again, if I have no access to them, I'm pulling out all the stops and making all the phone calls.
1: I dig it. It's pretty good advice.
0: Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading.